Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello everybody, welcome to episode 69 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, Ian here. Uh, firstly, a bit of an apology really about how crap I've been getting uh, episodes out in the last uh, few weeks. Um, just massively busy uh, personally and professionally and uh, I just haven't had the, the time or uh, frankly the inclination to do anything over and above. I think that would have properly pushed me over the edge if I'd had to try and tee up um, podcast interviews as well as all of the other things going on in what has been a phenomenally busy period of time. So as well as being very busy, we've also had this flipping building work going on. You can probably hear a bit of banging going on in the background, which is another reason why it's quite tricky doing podcasts. It's almost impossible to find a period of time where it's kind of quiet. There's usually someone using an angle grinder or a pneumatic drill or a landscaping kind of a whacker tool, whatever they call them. It's, it, it is doing our heads in at the moment. Eight months into a massive building project, anyone who's been through something like this at any stage in their life will know exactly what I'm talking about. We've never done this before, and I've got to say, we will never do it again because it is unbelievably stressful having people in your house every single day, six days a week they work, and um, the amount of mess is just um, just off the scale. So that's my my, my little window into our world and uh, my kind of excuse for not having been very good at keeping up with the weekly tempo of episodes. But on a brighter note, I've actually got four interviews teed up for uh, this week. And uh, I've just conducted the first of those four with uh, Andy Conway, who you will hear uh, shortly. Uh, Andy is a fantastic guy really experienced in the world of uh, policing and protection, particularly around major events. And uh, he's currently out in Qatar at the moment, organizing, has been out there for about three years uh, in the run up to the uh, World Cup and is responsible for getting the diplomatic and VIP protection teams um, up to speed. So, uh, so yeah, really interesting chat I have with Andy. But just before I get into that um, interview, 
Just one thing I listened to yesterday on BBC Radio 4. I sound like a right old fart, don't I? Anyone under the age of uh, 40, uh, BBC Radio 4 is actually a radio station um, listened to by people of my age and older. Um, if you listen to The World This Weekend, which was on yesterday um, at about, let me see, I'll tell you exactly what time it was on. It was on at one o'clock yesterday, lunchtime. And the second half of that, it's really worth listening to. I find it fascinating and worrying, alarming all at the same time. And it was a deep dive. Oh God, that sounds awful. A deep, deep dive. It was a deep dive into the shit show that is the criminal justice system in the UK at the moment. It was a really, really brilliant um, sort of, 15, 20 minute explanation of why the criminal justice system in the UK is in such an unbelievable mess. It didn't actually talk about policing. It talked about all of the other bits of the criminal justice system and what a complete car crash it has been since 2010. Um, there were some really interesting comments made by Anna Subri, who was the ex an ex-Tory uh, MP who has left politics and gone back to work at the bar. And she was unbelievably scathing about uh, what a mess it all is. And it just painted a very, very unhappy picture of uh, the legal profession, the courts, the judiciary, barristers, CPS, everything, everything is in such a mess. And oh my God, for a for, and again, this is the point I keep on making. This government loves to portray itself as the party of law and order. It could not be further from the truth. And if you don't believe me, listen to that. One o'clock on Sunday, uh, the world this weekend. You can skip forward. I think it starts about 15 minutes into it. Right. On that cheery note, we'll get into the interview with Andy. <laughs> Hey, there he oh, is. Magic. Excellent. Look at you. That looks like uh, you're clearly not in the UK by the looks of the backdrop. But I, I knew that already, didn't I? <laughs> no, clearly not in the UK. And it is 25 degrees today. So it's oh, mild. A balmy 25 degrees. So what time of day is it there? I'm, I should know this, given that it's the World Cup, shouldn't I? We are plus three. So it's quarter past one in the afternoon. All right. Okay. Right. Excellent. Well, nice to see you. It's always weird um, when I meet someone for the first time on the podcast because, you know, we generally exchange quite a few emails and messages. And um, uh, and then by the time the podcast kind of arrives, you sort of feel as if you kind of know them a little bit, but then you're kind of conscious of the fact that you've never actually met them. So it's kind of weird. So it's nice to nice to sort of see you and meet you properly for the first time. So. Thank you. It was a bit surreal to be asked to come on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'll explain. Well, so um, so you very kindly sent me a very nice email um, saying how much you're enjoying the podcast. And then uh, you sort of disclosed uh, what you were doing at the moment. And, um, and I thought, well, given the fact that we're in the midst of the World Cup and basking in the glory of England's 3-0 uh, defeat of uh, Senegal last night, I just thought it would be very timely to have you have you on. So 
for the benefit of people listening, can you just sort of introduce yourself briefly and explain what you're currently doing? Because that's the reason why I thought it was really interesting to chat. Yes, I'm Andy Conway. I am an ex-police inspector from the Metropolitan Police. And I left the police to come out here to help advise on security and safety for the World Cup. Right, excellent. So you're currently in Qatar. Is that, am I pronouncing that correctly, Qatar? Qatar? I'm yeah. not sure where you should put the emphasis. So it depends on where you come from in the Gulf. So in Qatari Arabic, it's more Qatar with a G rather than a Q. But right. it doesn't really matter. Everyone <laughs> understands. And Arabic is such a uh, expansive language, I suppose. There's so many different ways to pronounce it and different regional accents. You, you, you'd never get it right or wrong, in effect. So, so you've been out there for quite a while, haven't you? Is it a couple of two or three years, something like that? I've been here three years and two days now. So yeah, bloody hell. So yeah, so there's all sorts of things I want to kind of talk about. Um, firstly, as I always do, just your police career, uh, really interesting. I do believe you used to work with or know one of my previous podcast guests, Duncan Johnson, on yes. uh, on protection. Um, uh, but I'm really fascinated with uh, your decision to go out to Qatar, Qatar your um, experiences out there, your thoughts and reflections, because it's been quite a controversial World Cup, hasn't it, for all sorts of reasons. And as well as, I think, just the give it get give people a bit of an insight into the logistical headaches and challenges of such a massive event, and particularly when you're assisting to plan such a massive event in a foreign country. I think that's that's a that's a really interesting sort of um you know issue just to dive into so you happy with all of that more than happy with that brilliant excellent so let's talk about you first and your police career so uh when did you join the police joined in 1987 um went straight into the met i was 20 years old naive but i always knew i wanted to be a police officer when i left school one of those strange things that I just wanted to do. Right. And um, But judging from your accent, you're obviously from the south of England. Are you, are you a Londoner? Yeah, I'm from Ilford originally. So north, east London. I won't say I'm north London, but the right side of the Thames, obviously. Yeah. And I know um, I say this all. I know I say this all the time about the diversity of people in the Met, and particularly around that period of time. But uh, how many Londoners were in your class at training school? Probably... At most twenty percent, right? If that that many, yeah, it's mad. I'm just weird, thinking, most of them were from all over the UK. A lot from up north. There were some ex-army people. Um, yeah, very few really. About twenty percent came from London at that time, I think. So you were just a nipper. Well, your twentieth was not a real nipper, you know. But you was, there was younger people on that, weren't there? There was eighteen-year-olds, weren't there? There was. There were some nineteen-year-olds in my class who. I think cadets had just finished, so there weren't any cadets. The Met had decided that he didn't want to do cadets anymore. So everyone was a direct entry, because that's a different system for the Met now. Um, but yeah, so everyone had come from outside of the policing family at that point. So there were no more cadets at that point. So we'd all come from Civvy Street. It's insane, isn't it, when you think about it now? You know, you think about a 19-year-old joining the police and um, all the things that a police officer has to deal with. I mean, God almighty, 19 years old. I mean, most, I mean, this sounds awful. I'm sure there's some really sensible 19-year-olds out there. But my God, 
Um, it does feel too young, doesn't it? I don't know what you think. It does feel too young. And I certainly, when I look back, I think I was quite naive. I wasn't as worldly-wise as I thought I was coming from London. Um, I've got a 21-year-old son, and I look at him who's joining the army. We said to him, don't join the army when you're 18 because you're just not mature enough. Mm. You know, go out and get some uh, experience in the world, learn to deal with people before you go to the army. Yeah. So, And I think the police is similar. You know, we've got these huge amount of young people joining now, as it ever was, I guess. And then they get themselves into trouble by making probably most of them stupid mistakes, being a bit of a, an idiot mm. rather than trying to be corrupt or difficult. And then we punish them for it. And, you know, I'm not sure we have the, and I think you've touched on this a lot of time, the mentors and the role models in the police that we used to have who would take yeah. you down to the locker room and have a little yeah. word with you if you yeah. were doing something which was not good for the organisation or the team. That's right. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I mean, those sort of, those very experienced sergeants, you know, who had probably been in 20 plus years, um, who had seen it and done it, um, a few grey hairs, and they were very impressive characters, weren't they? And I can think of many, many, many people who I, you know, worked with us who were sergeants, who I had as sergeants over the years in my early parts of my career, who, who just wouldn't have tolerated that sort of stuff, would they? They just would not tolerate. Um, I mean, there's joking and laughing and banter and all that, but but when it comes to some of the behavior that they knew would drop you in this shit 100%. They just wouldn't tolerate it and they would and they would do it for your benefit, wouldn't they? You know, they would actually it was sort of like almost like in a fatherly motherly kind of way, wouldn't they? I think it's very much like that. They people were proud to be police officers or most of the police I came into contact with were proud to be police officers. They saw it as a 30-year career. They were dedicated to going out and arresting people and you know, everyone joined to ride around in a police car with the blue lights on and kick people's doors in to arrest them because that was the fun part of policing. Hmm. At the same time, they had an organisational reputation to uphold and their own, I think. Each relief had its own reputation. You know, mm -hmm. you were going to be the best thief takers. You were going to be the ones that were seen by the chief superintendent as being best relief. And I think some of that has lost us. We've gone into this transactional policing of... Hmm. Right, off you go. Yeah. There's a burglary. There's, there's somebody's talking about dog shit on their lawn from the neighbour. Yeah. Whatever it is, people go and deal with now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's been lost. Um, people have say that I'm old fashioned yeah. and stuck in the past, but actually that whole organisational reputational thing is a massive yeah. Yeah. industry thing still. Yeah. 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 And it was like, there was that funny thing. Well, sorry, we'll, we've digressed, but it's an interesting digression. Um, we will come back to your early career, but um, there was that whole thing about do not touch the cloth. Do you remember that? It's like mm. the cloth. So for the people, for, the, for people listening, have no idea what I've just said. There was this idea that if a member of the public, and it's generally a criminal or a scrote, lays hands on a police officer, it's like you do not touch the cloth. The cloth meaning the uniform, and anyone who touched the cloth was going to regret it very, very quickly, weren't they? Um, they were. And I don't think that was necessarily a bad thing. And I've had this conversation with people before about, you know, how police officers turn the other cheek when people are shouting and swearing at them from the other side of the street. My view was always, well, if you didn't go and speak to that person or deal with that person, 
the member of public who's walking past would think, well, if that's what he does when he, he shouts at him, what's going to happen to me when that person decides he can shout and swear at me? Will mm. he deal with that then? Yeah, yeah. So you didn't have to be aggressive or difficult, mm. Mm. but you had to show some authority that's right. of keeping the peace, which was one of those yeah. helium principles because yeah. i think that's another issue again sorry we are digressing but it's you know i think it's very timely isn't it that that impression the public definitely have the impression now that the police are not in control and half of the i think part of the reason for that is because they see a very fearful politically correct version of policing that they don't actually want they don't want the police officers to be like that they want the police officers i think to be figures of authority don't they um, so when they see people getting away with um, that sort of bad behaviour and gobbing off at police officers out in the street and getting away with it, then that creates a sense of of on insecurity, I think, doesn't it? Definitely. And that's the same in supervision, isn't it? So we, we touched on supervision. If you're not a proactive supervisor and deal with those that are, you know, constantly going sick, not turning up for work on time, doing all the things we've seen in the press, if you don't deal with that, then you're, the police itself, that your team would see you as being weak as a supervisor. Mm. Whilst they'd all be patting them on the back and saying, oh, it's terrible how the sergeant or the inspector is doing this. As soon as that person was dealt with, someone would sidle up to you and say, it's about time somebody squared that person up. Yeah, definitely. So that proactive, it, it goes right through the organisation, right through to how we deal with the public, I think. Yeah. No, definitely right. We've had our 10 minutes of being a pair of grumpy old bastards, haven't we? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> um, let's get back to your police career. So when you left Hendon, where did you get posted to? I got posted to City Road, which was part of Hackney Division. Right, OK. Busy old, busy old Nick then. Baptism of fire, yes. Um, but, 20 years uh, old know, in City Road, bloody hell. I think I just made, about made 21 by that point. But yeah, it was a baptism of fire on a relief of really good PCs who would take you out. Well, they, they wouldn't take you out. They'd send you out to do work, and then they'd come out and check up on you. Mm. Everyone had each other's backs, and the probationers were taught that they had to go out and do their work and learn their trade. Yeah. You had to go out and be proactive before you could come back and make the tea or you know, just sit at the table and have your dinner. You were expected to have done some work in that day. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was really, it was a really good relief. Um, it was a mixture of very old, uh, experienced, uh, you know, drivers. There was a, a cohort who had about five or seven years in, and then there was about five or six probationers who were all in that period of learning how to do their trade in Hackney. And it was for me, it was great. It was frightened the life out of me, but it was great because I was busy every day. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find, I um, mean, I'm speaking for myself here, the first six months or so, you haven't a bloody clue what's going on. I didn't anyway. And yeah. it was just the language of everything. It was just, it was like being, it was like having been beamed onto a different planet. Because not only are you dealing with an organisation full of very, very um, impressive and frequently intimidating and quite scary people some of your colleagues are, are very big characters aren't they but not only that but you're dealing with members of the public who, who want to cause you harm a lot of the time or you know there you, you see it for the first time in your life you see into a world that 
you didn't even know existed, did you? No, I mean, you know, drug addiction, prostitution. Though I came from London, I came from a fairly middle-class bit of London, I think. So I knew it all existed, um, you know, but I'd never really indulged and been put into that part mm. of that lifestyle, you know. Mm. And it was very competitive between the probationers about going out and being the best probationer. You know, there was a real esprit de corps on the relief. And it was, like you say, it was difficult. There were some real big characters. Um, and I'm guessing some of their behaviour might have been classed as bullying today. Mm. You know, by, you know, that constant pushing you to be better than you were. Yeah, yeah. And and the interesting thing was for me was I got to the end of my probation. I, you know, went and saw the chief superintendent. who was an old school superintendent called Niall Mulverhill, who was a really nice super, chief superintendent. And he sat down, he opened up my confirmation report and he said, it's fairly average. Fairly average. And I looked at it and I, and I sort of thought about it afterwards and thought, do you know what? It was fairly average. I got into a position where I was cruising at that point. And after that, after that comment, I think I never stopped taking my foot off, off the gas after that because I just thought I can't be, I can't be like that. I can't be not, you know, middle of the road. I want to be yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? In in life, it doesn't, not just in policing, it can be in any sphere of life, can't it? If there's a particularly impressive individual who you really want to, you really want to impress that person and they're hugely respected and a comment like that from someone who you respect like that is like a dagger in your heart isn't it it's yeah. like the worst thing in this shit I mean I've had people say that to me once or twice about not necessarily policing it could be something else and you know the word they'd often use would be I'm just disappointed I'm just disappointed yeah. and you just go oh god you know and it's there's something there isn't there about those role models in life, aren't they? They there are people who you really, really look up to, and you're really desperate to please them, you know. Yeah, and I think when you're a young twenty-something-year-old, probably even more desperate to please because you haven't got to that point in your life where you think actually I should be just be content with what I'm delivering for myself rather than for everyone else. But yeah, I think at that point I was desperate to please because that was how you got specialist postings. That's how you got on the crime squad. That's how you got a driving course. Yeah. You know, if you were middle of the road, you didn't get that sort of thing. That's right. Now, I think everyone just feels they're entitled to it because they turn up for work. Mm, that's right. Yeah, there, there, there has to be that level of competition, hasn't there? There has to be. There will always, it's that, um, now I'm going to start, I'm going to get this, I'm going to murder the facts here. I'm going to get this really, it's a Pareto distribution, isn't it? It's like that bell curve, is it Pareto distribution? That bell curve, isn't it? There'll always mm -hmm. be a lot of people in the middle who are sort of like, you know, okay, they're doing all right, aren't they? And then there's, there's always going to be, and it doesn't matter whether it's golf, whether it's playing tiddlywinks, it doesn't matter whether it's policing or nerd, whatever it is, there'll always be super high performers from there. And there'll be those towards the bottom who are who are pretty piss poor. And then a lot of people in the middle. But yeah, so you can never you can never get away from that, can you? So in terms of next sort of steps, where, where did your career go in this sort of early years? So I spent... Seven years at Hackney, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And I decided to apply for the ARVs, which was a fairly new thing in the Met at that time. Um, they still had the guns in the cabinets in the cars. You had to ask for permission to take them out. Um, and for some reason, they decided I was a good candidate to go on the ARVs. Oh, bloody hell. Um, so I went there for three or four years. Had a great time again. 
Um, so this is really, early. This is this must have been really early days for ARVs, wasn't it? Yeah. So this was '95, I think '94, '95, something like that. Right. Um, okay. So I went there, did that, got promoted, which I was pleased about, and went back to uniform policing at Forest Gate as a sergeant. Right. Which is another for those really busy multicultural borough. And at the mm. time, I think there was something like 85 languages spoken on the borough. It was phenomenal yeah, to yeah. go there. Now, West Ham um, football ground there. Mm. It had all old, old East End people, new immigration. It was just madness. Um, and again, a really busy borough. Had a great time there. Uh, where did I go from there? I went to CIB2 from there. A complaint. Yeah, so it was complaints, but it was also corruption. So it was deaths in custody or deaths through police contact, I think it is now, police shootings um, and serious complaints. So it wasn't the run of the mill complaints um, yeah, yeah. that you get at the police station. Well, that's interesting, slightly unusual. I mean, gosh, that's a very, so very quick. So when you went to CIB2, you've it feels like you'd what probably less than ten, but ten years service, less than ten years yeah, service. Nine years, nine or so ten years service. So yeah. you've so you've packed a hell of a lot into those first nine years, haven't you? Think about it. You yeah. know, uniform policing in Hackney, um, armed response vehicle, but he's uniform sergeant, another really busy nick, and then to sort of counter corruption kind of thing. I mean, so what was it took you in there? Did someone sort of invite you? Presumably you so invited I was looking for some development. You know, you keep getting told you've got to develop yourself, show some broad, because I was going to do my, I did my inspector, so I was, I'd, I'd done the first part of that already. And somebody said, this would be really good for you because you've been in firearms and they've never had anyone who's a firearms officer deal with police shootings. Right. So. That was the sort of inner for me that I knew how firearms officers thought, um, how they acted, what the rules were. Um, and it was quite a hard move because I ended up at one point uh, investigating a shooting um, by some of my previous colleagues. Oh, gosh. And there was, two, there was two that I was asked to look at. So one I declined because I knew the person who who'd, uh, carried out the shooting. So I said to the superintendent, I can't do this because I've got conflict of interest straight away. Although um, nothing untoward was going to happen, if anyone looks at this and goes back through our careers, we've yeah. served together twice. Yeah. Served together twice at that point. So yeah. um, I declined that one. The other one, I didn't know the officers personally. And interestingly, at the end of the day, on the first day, one of them came up to me and said, you'll never work in firearms again. Oh, God, charming. Um, yeah, well, it's a, I mean, my, I take my, I genuinely take my hats off to you, Andy, to, to put yourself into that position because, I mean, that's horrible. It's a horrible, you know, head versus heart situation, isn't it, really? Yeah, and, you know, I knew that, I knew when I went in there it was going to be difficult. Um, and, you know, I'm a big enough character to water off a duck's back, but it was at that point I realised I had to consider which investigations I could be involved in. Mm. Um, and I worked for a really good superintendent called Steve Dan, who went on to be, I think, ACC or Chief Constable of Hampshire in the end. Um, and he was a chalk or cheese character. Lots of people didn't like him. 
but he was pretty much a good mentor for me. Mm. And uh, we, there were ones that I could say to him, I can't be involved in this. And he would say, okay, yeah, I get that completely. And it works for the organisation that you're not involved. I think, you know, investigating those deaths in custody and police shootings was really shaped my career after that because I became aware where all the pitfalls were, Mm. what the processes should be and how to manage people so that you got the best out of them. Mm. We probably saved more people's careers than we damaged Mm. in the time we were there. Yeah, it's really interesting. I don't know if you've listened to the episode with Tony Long talking about his the torrid time that he had, um, you know, with the Azel Rodney shooting. Um, yeah, for anyone listening to this who hasn't, sort of, you need to skip back. It's probably probably I don't know, episode ten or eleven, something like that. But yeah, it's very very stressful, isn't it? Very stressful mm. for uh, for farms officers, isn't it? So so long did you spend there? Two or three years, I think, mm-hmm. and then I got promoted again. That was the, the, you know, and I went and worked for ACPO for two years um, on the basis that I was told by somebody else, you need to start looking at strategic evidence now for your chief inspectors. Mm-hmm. At that point, I'd sort of got it in my head that I was on my way promotion-wise, right. that this was it. You know, I'd skipped from sergeant to inspector within three years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really liked being an inspector because you were in charge of a lot of stuff. I think uh, Jay Warwick Saunders spoke about night duty where, yeah. you know, everyone else goes home on night That's duty. Right. Yeah. And the inspector is running the whole train set, in, in effect, right. the whole borough. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, I really enjoy that, though. I, thought, yeah. I got a I big buzz it. out of that. Yeah. So I liked working for ACPO for a couple of years, but it wasn't, you know, I hate you doing strategic reports um, mm. and stakeholder engagement and stuff like that. So I applied to go back to borough. Right. So I went back to Forest Gate because I loved it so much mm-hmm. as an inspector, a uniform inspector. All right. But I think um, those I had, uh, I talk about that in the book about that period of time I spent as a staff officer. I bloody hated every minute of it. And um, it was just complete. I was a fish out of water. And um, I think I was probably the worst staff officer in, in the history of staff officers, you know. But um, but yeah, sometimes you you know you take a bit of a left turn or a right turn in a long police career, and you end up find yourself somewhere where you think, oh, what the hell am I doing here? You know. But but anyway, you know. So um, so let's get on to let's move towards sort of because obviously you you did some really interesting jobs in the security um, protection kind of world. Um, so was that in SO fifteen or did you were you no, on the so- protection side of things? So I was a TF. I was one of the first TFCs in the Met when they went over to uh, Carter Firearms Commander, and then I took promotion to Chief Inspector for the fourth time. <laughs> <laughs> um, went and did the interview, walked away from the interview, and thought, I don't want to be a Chief Inspector. <laughs> I never wanted to be a Chief Inspector. I just wanted to be a Superintendent to get the pension. Um, <laughs> And it was strange because I went into work to write my appeal, hmm. sat down, looked at it, and then drove home. My wife was like, Ooh, that was quick. And I said, I'm never taking promotion again. I said, I don't want to be promoted. I like being an inspector. I like work I get. So yeah. you're stuck with an inspector for the rest of your career. Um, and it was probably the best decision I made. And at the same time, uh, somebody said to me, have you ever considered going to protection? 
And at that time, I only knew protection as being special branch. But so, mm. although it had moved on quite a long way. So I applied and again got in. I mean, I've, I've been really lucky. You know, I've been able to reinvent myself through a number of jobs in, in the police. And that was mm. the great thing about the Met is that you can, there are lots of different avenues, mm. whether it's the, in the detective side or the uniform side. That's right. And I went to protection. I did the normal stuff, but also I went into the operations office there and did the Commonwealth Games up in Scotland. So very similar to going to Qatar because it is another country uh-huh. uh, and runs under slightly different law as well, which was yeah. a little bit weird. Um, did the NATO conference. So I think what else we did. I'd have done the Olympics as a TFC. So I've done some big event stuff. Yeah. And I was really happy there, got to 30 years, um, started looking around for jobs. And then I did something weird. I went to do an executive coach, paid quite a lot of money for it. And I'd right. suggest to anyone who's leaving the job and you're thinking about what you're going to do, think about spend some money on professionals to advise you. Right. And I spent two hours with her in the first um, interview. And she said to me, why are you leaving the police? I said, because I can get my pension and, you know, you're told everyone wants to employ police officers. And she said, you need to be really, really careful because you've got a job you really like. You're going to work every day. You've told me this with your mates. You you come home happy. She said, so you may not get that in the outside world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she said, you need to write down what you want from a job when you leave the police. So at that point, I decided not to leave the police and stay in protection. Right. Um. And I got moved into the Hurley, the high-risk environment posting. So I was traveling to Somalia, Iraq, Yemen. So some really interesting so this places. Is as, as a protection officer, is that? Yeah, so, yeah, as running the teams. So, right. And then somebody rang me up and said, are you interested in going and working at the World Cup? Um, so we had a chat, and it was like, yep, and it took a year and again, this is something that people leaving the job need to understand, that people will ring you up and ask you about jobs without actually having the contract mm. because they're going to put your name on that contract when they submit it to the client, yeah. your CV. So it took a year. And then I, I got rung up when I was in Pakistan with, so I think I was there with, Prince William. So when he did his trip to Pakistan, I was in Pakistan. They rang me up and said, when can you start? Brilliant. That's like, Right, okay. And I sat down with my family uh, and said, okay, I've been offered this job abroad. If anyone doesn't want me to go, I'll stay because I've got this great job and I don't mind staying, but it's a nice opportunity. And they all went, no, it's a great idea. Off you go, Dad. (laughs) See you later. (laughs) Yeah, I think my daughter said something like, so we're going to get good holidays. You're going to earn more money. And and you're not going to be here. And I was like, yes. It's like, it's like <laughs> check, check, check. <laughs> tick, tick. Um, How does that make you feel? Oh, and then dear. six weeks later, I landed in Qatar. So one of the important things I did, and I pushed back about coming any earlier, was that I'd always promised myself that I would have a break from the police before I started my next job. Yeah. And somehow I managed to convince my wife it would be a good idea for me and my mate to go to India for a month. <laughs> and so she, sw- we, she had it. She swallowed it, did she? Yeah, she swallowed it. There was a little bit of a uh, 
icing on the cake was that she came to his wife and my wife came and joined us for the last week of our trip around Goa and Kerala and Mumbai. So, oh, brilliant! So, uh, listen, so, let's 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 skip back a little bit because there's such a lot in there, such a lot in there. But before before I talk about the protection stuff, because there's right, that's interesting right, to talk about that. I know we've talked about protection before with Duncan, but it's always interesting to hear it from a slightly different perspective. I think. Um, I thought I was fascinated with what you said about your decision to step away from the whole promotion thing. Um, and I thought that's such a sensible thing. And I'd, I'd say to anyone who's listening to this, who's in that kind of shalai or shantai with promotion, particularly that step up from inspector to chief inspector is be careful what you wish for in life. You know, there's so many pitfalls about going beyond the rank of inspector. And it's very, very, once you're there, if you go to chief inspector or superintendent, whatever, you, there's kind of no coming back. Um, and I knew a lot of very unhappy chief inspectors and, and probably even more very unhappy superintendents, you know. So I thought your decision to do that was was full of full of wisdom. And um, I bet you felt such a weight lifting off your shoulders once you'd kind of like made that decision almost because it's quite, I think it's quite liberating, isn't it? Absolutely. And they're the two words I would use, you know, weightlifting off the shoulders and liberating, because it gave me the, the ability to then focus on what I enjoyed doing and how I was going to spend at that point was the last seven years of my career, in yeah. effect. Yeah. So I could then focus the, the talents and, you know, you pick up quite a lot of skills and talents. And, you know, as an inspector for 18 years in the end, but I never regretted that. I loved being an inspector. Yeah, the the other the other thing the other thing is sort of just dive into the whole protection thing. So um, I know that when I was in special branch, as I've said before in previous podcasts, the protection was done by special branch, but then that changed and it all sort of got amalgamated into one single protection department, which kind of was like a so you did both the royalty as well as the diplomatic and political. Um, so you you joined that department, I take it. Yeah, so I joined it, yeah, 2014, I think I joined. So it was one protection department. It was SO1 and SO14 at the time. So the royalty was separate to the diplomatic. So I, did, I went on to the diplomatic side um, and I never went over to the royalty side even when we amalgamated as one protection unit. Right, okay. So Not uh, through any other reason of choice, really. I got offered some really good postings. I'm, I'm was with two prime ministers. Uh, I did the high risk stuff um, and the operations posting. Which, so uh, which, which PMs did you work work uh, work for? Uh, Cameron and May. So here's the question. I've always done, been dying to ask this question. I, I don't think I don't think Duncan worked on uh, Theresa May's protection team. I know what the I know what the answer you're going to give before I even ask the question, but I'll ask the question anyway. How did it feel? to be on Theresa May's protection team during that horrible period when the legs got taken away from under policing under Theresa May as sort of Home Secretary and Prime Minister. Did, was that, did you feel a, a strong sort of tension in having to spend every day with someone who basically had completely shafted the police? I didn't know. Um... So I had, I had mixed views on the way it was done and the response from people like the Federation. and um, But I just sort of got on with my job. So I liked uh, 
Mrs. May as a person. She was very, very light, and I liked working for her. Hmm. At the end of the day, you know, these people aren't your friends. They're not. They are people you're employed to save, so they're safe every day. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, and, and I, I knew, I knew that that's the answer you would give, and that's not. And that's not a. I know that you're not being deliberately diplomatic. I, I know that that's a, that's the professional answer, isn't it? But I suppose the, I suppose we're all human beings, aren't we? We're all human beings, and um, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, I know I know quite a few ex protection officers, and you know they worked on various teams with various prime ministers, and they would get to see behind the curtain, I suppose. And listen, and will be overhearing a lot of conversations that sometimes horrified them at the, I don't know, I suppose the level of chaos and incompetence that often goes on at those very high levels of government. Um, so it's a very, it must be a very strange job, I imagine, in that, when you're put into those positions. It's a very privileged position to be in. You're sitting on the sidelines of government. Um, when decisions are made, you know, I had an office at Downing Street. My office was at Downing Street. I went to Downing Street to work every day, which mm. my kids at the time thought was fantastic, you know. Um, and you lived, it's so intrusive. And I think Duncan, who was one of my mentors, um, alluded to this. It's so intrusive for the people when they get it that, you know, just trying to make that work between the team and the principal sometimes is really difficult. Um, but you are very privileged. You see what it's really like within government, um, mm. even if you're just sitting on a chair outside. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it must have been, I mean, my God, I would love to, I mean, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall and some of the shenanigans over the last sort of two, two, three years, it, it, it must have been absolutely hair-raising to, to have been sat there, you know, with a, view, with a window into that um complete shit show that we've seen in the last couple of years i think that's the only words you can use to describe it isn't it well this year has been interesting from over here i can tell you that much <laughs> oh, the, yeah. the question that people always ask after which ones you like the best is what do you talk about with them you say we don't really talk because when they're in the car they're working they're mm. taking phone calls they're prepping reports you know they work incredibly hard whether the outcome is what people who voted for and wanted but they do work incredibly hard, these people. Mm -hmm. um, and you can pass the time of day, but actually they're there to work, you're there to work. Yeah. Um, so there are times, you know, I've, I've had mince pies with the prime minister, you know, <laughs> which, yeah. you know, Christmas cards, all that sort of stuff, which seems very twee. Actually, it's, it's quite something that other people have to do. Yeah. So it is an incredibly privileged lifestyle. Yeah, no, definitely. And you're you're 100 percent. You're absolutely right. You're there. You're there to do a job. And, you know, as public servants and police officers, it, it, it uh, we're there to keep the public safe and we're there to keep the people who are in charge of the country uh, safe, regardless of how you might personally feel about them or their politics, I suppose. But um, mm. so. Um, so some of those uh, hostile foreign uh, deployments, did you have any kind of uh, worrying uh, moments or does it all go fairly smoothly? Most of them went fairly smoothly. The great, and this is the incredible power that's invested in you. So, as the team leader on a hostile environment, you get the decision when you can cancel a government minister's visit to a country. 
So right. if you're not happy with something, and I know several of my colleagues have done it, I've done it, we've curtailed programs in countries because of incidents or behavior or all sorts of things. And I, I suppose one of the frustration of this is we went to Nigeria to a refugee camp in the in the north. And as the principal was flying up from the capital to the refugee camp, there were two um, detonations at a border point on the edge of the city by uh, people, uh, suicide bombers. And they used to use children there or teenagers, teenage girls. And as the plane landed, I went out onto the tarmac and said, OK, we're not going there. So you've got government minister onto our media, We've all travelled a long way to come to see this too, and the people want them to be there because they're looking for aid money. And you just say, right, this is the reason why you're going to put people in danger if you go there, because you're the target. You're going to have thirty thousand people around you who we can't, we don't even know who they are. So if they detonate and kill other people, that's your fault because you've gone there. Um, oh, so God. you need you need to be able to. Spin the wheel, I think is the phrase, using that uh, that process to try and work out the safety of others, not just those that are going. Because government ministers will go anywhere if they can to yeah, get some yeah. promotion and stuff. You've got to think about everyone else who's involved, not just yourselves as protection officers. All the people are going to be around them. So we cancelled that part of the trip. But we'd also had in our back pocket a uh, uh, another venue to go to, a, a grain warehouse where they were distributing grain. There's high walls, glass walls around it, and we could do that. Yeah. But, you know, these places aren't safe. That's why they're high risk. Mm. We, the idea is to plan out as much as you can before we get there. So um, is there a sp specific additional course that you need to do? to? Because obviously you do, everyone does the, the sort of personal protection course. Um, bodyguard course, we'll call it, you know, what you want. Um, is there a, an additional hostile um, yeah. kind of travel course that you need to do as well? It's, it's an additional, I think it's three or four, it might be four weeks now, so it's a four-week course. Um, and at one point, I think we had 50 officers in the Met who were authorised to go on those sort of trips, probably about the same now. Right. Another pass or fail course, so it's another level up from your protection course it's the same level of skill required which is at 90 percent mm. you know all shooting's done at 90 percent protection um so and it's just it's about cultural thinking about how to move about what the issues may be and how to get around them so um who runs that course is that an internal met course or is it an, an... by a um, firearms unit c19 all right Where they are now right Okay, so let's let's get into Qatar then. So obviously, um, it's been a very controversial World Cup, hasn't it? And you know, I'm very mindful yes. of the fact that at the end of the day, they're your employers at the moment, and I'm not expecting you to, you know, to voice an opinion uh, one way or the other in terms of some of the controversy around whether they should or whether they shouldn't be hosting the World Cup. That I think that that um, that debate has been done to death, hasn't it? And uh, here we are, we're in the middle of the tournament, and so far, it, it, uh, I think everyone's enjoying it. And, uh, you know, we'll put, I think it's probably best just to put aside the, the politics of all of that or um, whatever. Um, in terms of your 
actual role? What is what is your actual specific role out there? I'm an advisor to what I started off in protection matters out here. So the police is split up into several different units. Um, so all the specialist unit, all the specialist policing functions are put into one uh, entity out here called the Lequeur. And I, I advise on protection coordination and some of the protection stuff was my initial role out here. Um, and I've also, in the last three years, I've worked on the Fan Zone project, the Fan, the Fan Fest project. I've delivered the Formula One security with some of my colleagues when that suddenly came along. Um, I think what else we've done? We've done a whole load of stuff. So we've moved around a lot of projects out here. Um, but my primary project is around protection coordination of high numbers of protected people. Right. Okay. So how many, um, are there many Brits out there? So there's not. So the majority of the planners on the security side are Russian. Russian? They've come from the last World Cup. Oh, bloody hell. I am the only person in the office who is the, my first language is English. And most of my colleagues are Russian or Qatari. Right. Okay. Bloody hell. So that adds another whole level of uh, controversy into the mix altogether, <laughs> doesn't it? So, uh, God, where do you start with that one? Um, yeah. How's that? How's that for you, Andy? It's, it's uh, <laughs> delicate. So nobody talks about talks about it in the office. Don't mention it, the war. Don't mention the war. And it's it's an interesting fact, isn't it? Because we're used to living in a society where you can discuss what you want when you want. If you upset someone, you say, "I'm sorry." You know, potentially you've got People, well, there are some people that support it, some people that don't here, um, but none of them will talk about it in the office because nobody knows who's going to talk to the embassy. Mm. So, and they've got families back in Russia, and you know, it, there is. I find it quite strange. Yeah, you know, because we're used to an open society. We don't realise that there's still some quite oppressive, or how oppressive it is, I suppose. Yeah, um, and I get along really well with my Russian colleagues. They're nice, nice guys and ladies. Um, mm. You know, they've made me feel very welcome um, in in some bits and less so in others. But it's just yeah. working in an environment where yeah. you work with other people. Yeah, well, the reality um, the reality is that um, people are people, aren't they? And um, yeah. I don't I don't think our none of our our quarrel, if you want to call it that, our quarrel isn't with the Russian people. Our quarrel is with the regime of Vladimir Putin, isn't it? And um, definitely, I actually feel you very know, sorry for most Russian people who are in that horrible, oppressive yeah. life. And you know, some of the, these are young. Me, there's no, there's now very little work in event management back in Russia because there's no international events now. So they're worried about their jobs after this, where they're going to be employed because of with the uh, different rules and regulations in different countries. Uh, so it's quite a worrying time for them, not just because of the war going on, because of the implications of that, mm -hmm. their lives and their families. You know, so it's, there's a much wider, broader impact that we see on a daily basis here, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the, we're all Qatari, to the, end of the Qatari authorities, um, how much contact do you have with the Qatari um, police as such uh, every day of the week so okay. so my my commander who i work to uh, is a qatari police officer so all of the strands that have been qatari commanders so one of the things that was really important for us as the 
Sue here? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. So I, the last, but the last ten. So I, the last we lost each other when you were saying, um, yeah. So Qatari, Qatari police officer. You're working for a Qatari police officer, is that right? Yeah. So when we came here, there were seven of seven Brits on the contract. There's only three now because of uh, cuts during COVID. Um, but the, the big thing for us, and on the first day we said, you know, we're not going to come here and tell you how to do it, how we've done it. We'll tell you what our experience is. We need to plan a Qatari solution that fits what you've got here. Because what we do in the UK, though it's good practice, may not work here. And that's always been the ethos of what I've been planning out here, is to deliver something that is Qatari, Arabic, something that fits the systems out here. That they can deliver it, and that's it's a Qatari-facing um, delivery now. So I'm back into an advisor role during the actual competition. Right. Okay. And um, in terms of uh, the number of principals who require protection, I imagine that's like mega because you've got people literally from all over the world. Yeah, and it goes up and down on a daily basis, depending on who gets through, what the other is, because there's a lot of side events here as well. Um, and I think, you know, as we get into the final stages, we'll get a lot more um, because heads of state tend to want to come to when, when their teams are successful, they're more likely to, to, to um, yeah. bathe in that success. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 let's talk about uh, a scenario. OK, which um, so World Cup, let's talk about World Cup final or semi final or something like that. And you've got, as you say, you've got multiple big wigs from around the world. Who are coming to um, enjoy the tournament? And so, who is? I mean, I think again, I probably know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, who would be predominantly responsible for their protection whilst they're in Qatar? Is it their local protection teams, or is it? Yep. Do you provide the teams? No. So we've we've got uh, local protection teams. We've been training for the last three years, two years. So the first year was the drive to get it up and running. So we've been training for the last two years, so we've got enough to do a substantive number of principles out there because right, um, okay. we're expecting uh, a lot in for the final, definitely, um, because there'll be the handover of the competition to the next World Cup uh, hosts, so they'll all be here, I'd have thought. Um, but so presum got... Presumably, if you've got a head of state coming out there, they will still have as an element of their own protection people around them, will they? Yeah, so I think it'll be it's like any other protection operation. So they can bring their people with them, but the primacy sits under international law with the Qataris. So they'll provide the protection. And you know, it's always good practice to have their protection team or someone from their protection team with them because they know, you know, what they like to do, where they're gonna go, but they won't be in charge of their protection. The protection, the same as in the UK, will be primacy of the host nation. Right. Okay. And there's there's, there's another entity, so it's a bit like the UK where you've got royalty and uh, ministerial here, so it's split into those two here as well. So mm -hmm. it's a model stand and no, stand and no. Mm -hmm. and, and if you've got a French protection officer or a British protection officer, for that matter, coming out there, are they going to be carrying weapons? Is that going to be permitted? That's a decision for history of. Oh, there we go, got you back. So that's a, sorry, that's a decision for. Ministry of Foreign Affairs to make on a case-by-case -case basis. So we don't get involved in that. It's done at a government level, right. the same as in the UK, really. They run a very similar model to the UK, yeah. um, where the application goes in through the embassy, decisions are made, and then we're 
pretty much a service delivery agency where they'll say, this person's come in, this is the number of people in the party, these are the rules. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's atmosphere, um, um, unbelievable, a ma- massive, a massive headache. I mean, and uh, it seems I've got to say, from you know, sat on my sofa with a beer in my hand watching the football, it seems to be going very smoothly. I mean, there's, a, I'm sure there've probably been hiccups behind the scenes, but was uh, that your kind of general assessment? Yeah, I mean, it's gone incredibly smoothly. I have to say, it's been really, really good doing it. There have been hiccups, as there are with all mega events. But the benefit of running sequential events many days to do it, you can change very rapidly yeah. and get your learning in very quickly um, for the next day, for the next day. Whereas if you're running like the Formula One when it was here, you've got three days, you've got to deliver everything and everything becomes a crisis. Having the luxury of some time to change stuff around. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's a really... Really important thing. We've done lots of testing and exercising um, over the last two years, right the way through COVID. We've been running football competitions here under all sorts of different medical bubbles. I mean, it's been very challenging mm. on top of just running the teams around and getting them into the country. And COVID was a difficult period here as it was everywhere else in the world. So I'd been here three months when the country went into lockdown. So the whole point of me coming here was that we were going to meet up every six to eight weeks, my wife and I, my kids. And then suddenly I was here for eight months. Oh, God. That was it. Country was locked down. We were told, if you want to go home, you can. can't guarantee you coming back into the country. Oh, bloody hell. So because you're, you know, I, I get paid to go to work, the same as everyone else, and that? That pays for a lifestyle back in the UK for my family. So yeah. I made the decision that I couldn't really go back. Sexy mm. um, is to be in these roles abroad. You know, living abroad, it's great, you know. And it is, there's some real benefits from being here. The sun shines every day. Yeah. Which is really nice. But, you know, one of the guys, uh, his mother died while he was out here. So he had to go back. Right. And then there was the issue of trying to get him back into Qatar. We had to get the authority of the Prime Minister. Bloody hell. Yeah, I mean, I imagine it, it must come, I mean, it must be hard. I mean, how often do you typically, now that COVID's out of the way and something like normal, but uh, typically how often do you get back to the UK? So this year's been the best year. So I see, I've seen my wife probably every eight to ten weeks. Right, okay. Um, apart from we're in a leave ban from July. So yeah, she came out. So yeah, I've seen her. I saw her eight weeks ago. So. Right. And how does um what what does the future look like in terms of once the World Cup's out of the way? What's uh, what does the next sort of six to twelve months look like for you? It's a really interesting question because there's potential for other jobs here. I think my wife would like me to go back to the UK mm-hmm. so we're together again because it does put a big strain on people being abroad and being apart. Um, so going to discuss that. We've had a chat about her coming here, if there's other jobs offered here. Mm. Um, I've offered to go back and be a house husband as well. Uh-huh. Apparently, do you, you going out with your mate's you drinking what, coffee isn't going to be, can it? Do you remember what I said, Andy, about be careful what you wish for? <laughs> <laughs> I've kind of been a little bit like that the last, um, since since COVID. I mean, I'm, I'm spinning up 
uh, a, a tech startup with three others um, a tech startup. There's quite a lot of stuff to do around that. But um, but but I'm the pre predominant kind of, you know, do most of the childcare, um, most of the kind of running around. And we've had this 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 bloody headache, massive headache of a building project going on for eight months now, uh, which is doing my fruit in official, like properly doing my head in. Um, uh, so, yeah, just be careful what you wish for on that one, you know. My, my children have grown up, so, oh, right, so okay. yeah, most of the time they are anyway. So it, I'm in a, a lucky position where I'm not running into school and stuff. Um, yeah. Well, I'm nine, mine are nine and eleven, so I've got a lot. And and you know what's properly doing my head in at the moment is all the after school hormones, <laughs> flipping after school stuff. Oh my god, with football, with different clubs and things going on in the evening, and oh my god, honestly, I am properly a taxi driver uh, at the moment, but um. But um, listen, uh, my friend, I'm sorry, I'm signing this from my right old moan there, aren't I? But uh, yeah, it's just you talking about being a house husband. I was like, just, yeah, I've got to say maybe three or four months, but I guarantee you having led the life and the career that you've had, I think you'd probably get bored very, very quickly. Um, but uh, yeah, but listen, um, probably not a bad place to kind of draw a line there. Um, that was that was fascinating. My God, you've you've lived about 10 lives in one life, haven't you? There are days when I feel like it and other days when I don't. So, but I, you know, somebody described this to me on the day I left. He says, you've had a great career. You spent 30 years going to work with your mates and having a laugh. And yeah. I left the police happy. I wasn't bitter. I wasn't disappointed with what I'd achieved. I left the police on the last day with a certificate that said Constable Andrew Conway on it. But, you know, they can't get it right all the time. Um, I, le I left happy, and there's a lot of people in the organisation now who are just marking time. Mm. They feel bitter because uh, they haven't been promoted as far as they think they should. They haven't got the role. And you know, I was really lucky. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really no, you, you had a. I mean, that you've. I mean, bloody hell, what you what you did even before you had like ten years in is pretty impressive. So, uh, so yeah, so well, well done you and. You know, I'm sure lots of people will be listening to this and, you know, very grateful for all the jobs that you did do. The fact that you put yourself at significant risk in most of them, you know, I mean, you certainly didn't shy away from those difficult jobs, um, you know, carrying a gun for many, many years, as well as, you know, the investigation side of it on CIB2 and everything. It's, uh, yeah, I take my hat off to you, mate. You've, uh, you've, uh, you've, you've really um, put yourself into the, into the lion's den on on more than more than a few occasions so uh yeah and then you know coming here with everything that was going on i think you're right um you know i'm very grateful for the the chat you know it's lovely as i said i think in my email the uk police is still seen as the standard from a lot of places abroad to achieve mm. we should never forget that and if we can keep that going we will be in a really good position of policing but i don't know how they keep that going yeah, because it well, is very competitive know. internationally, and other police forces are all trying to uh, get in there yeah. and make it. Yeah, you know, no, I think um, it's got business some, model. It's got some real. It's got some real difficulties at the moment, but um, you know, I, I do think um, you know things are. I'm beginning to see a few little green shoots of recovery. I think. Um, you know, there's a there's a lot a lot of things that need fixing, but uh, that's just uh, 
let's just hope that uh, you know, with a fair wind behind them and some strong leaders, and uh, and hopefully a bit more money from the government, things can they can turn things around a bit. But yeah. listen, my friend, um, the very best of luck with the rest of the tournament. Um, I shall be Thank looking you. forward to uh, cheering England on Saturday. Um, we had a real good evening last night in the house, as I'm sure a lot of people did watching and uh, beating Senegal. It was a great, a great performance, and uh, yeah. We were just um, behind the goal last night, so we've been very lucky that we were allowed to buy tickets and our bosses arranged our duties that we could go. So I've managed uh, to see three England games while I've been here. Oh, wow. Brilliant. Excellent. I'm dead jealous. All right, my friend. Well, listen, you take care. And um, as I say, I always say this, don't I? But uh, I'll add you to the long the, the list that's getting longer and longer of people to buy a beer for at some point in the future. Thanks, Ian. Street and town.